The Near Futurist, a podcast with Guy Clapperton. Hello, and thanks for downloading The Near Futurist, a show presented by me, Guy Clapperton. Today, my guest is going to talk about comfort, ergonomics, and the workplace, if your workplace happens not to be on Earth. But first, a bit about who you're listening to. I'm Guy Clapperton, a technology journalist and media trainer with 30 years experience. You might have heard me or seen me on the BBC occasionally, read some of my books, or seen me in The Guardian, Intelligence Sourcing Magazine, and elsewhere. I go to a lot of conferences and hear experts talking about their forecasts about the decades to come. I'd rather use my 30 years experience as a commentator to discuss what's likely to happen later this year, early next, and the action we need to take now to be ready for it. So I came up with the near futurist name. Do have a look at my website at nearfuturist.co.uk, where you'll find more episodes and information on what we're about. If you'd like to book me as a speaker or MC for your technology event, do have a look at the showreel on site and drop me a line, guy at nearfuturist.co.uk. That's nearfuturist as one word. Or get in touch with my agent, whose details are, of course, also on the site. If you like what you're hearing on the podcast, please do consider leaving a review or rating on the iTunes store or wherever you download from it. If you've done so already, thank you very much. If you're new to the show, of course, you're more than welcome. But that's loads about me, so let's get to my guest for this show. I'm really quite excited about this one. When I first started this podcast six months or so ago, a few people said, ha ha, futurist, so when are you interviewing NASA? The answer is today, right now. 50th anniversary of the moon landing, it doesn't get better than this. My guest is a chief knowledge architect in the space travel arena, and before we all assume this is hysterical fun the whole time, what he actually does is to use graph technology from Neo4j to help sift the 90,000 post-mission comments of all the astronauts who have visited the International Space Center in the last 19 years or so to provide useful hints on how to improve the experience of living in space. He also uses the same company's graphs to delve into other NASA archives, a project that's turned up vital information from the 1960s orbital missions that's helped to fix the uprighting mechanisms in the multi-billion dollar Orion spacecraft. So what better time than the 50th anniversary of the first moon landing to speak to the knowledge architect at NASA, David Messer. Welcome. Thank you, Guy. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to your speakers. Oh, the, the, the opportunity and the pleasure is entirely mine. But we can't really start this off without mentioning a certain anniversary that's happening right now. There's an awful lot of space race mania around in the UK, much as there was 50 years ago when I was a child. I know you're not briefed on the thinking behind the Apollo missions, and I certainly know that neither you nor I are old enough to have worked on them, even if I were qualified, which I'm certainly not. But in general terms, how comfortable, how uncomfortable do you imagine those early astronauts would have been? Well, that's a good question. Thinking about how the astronauts comfort and, and their traveling space today and the long advances we have made over the years, I'd have to imagine back then it was very difficult for them in the small confines of the Apollo capsule to, to, to be launched into space around Earth and eventually to the moon and back. So we've made some huge strides, but at that time frame, I think they were looking more towards getting to the moon than the comfort of the astronauts. I think that's probably right. I mean, and also, let's face it, technology's changed. Going to the dentist in those days was bad enough, let alone going to the moon. <laughs> you know, that's changed too. But you mentioned that you've made huge strides. You've uh, mentioned current space travel. So if I were to become an astronaut now, forgetting the fact that I'm unfit and too old, what, what would a young astronaut, what would a new astronaut expect to find in outer space? 
Well, if they're going to the International Space Station, they would expect to find a world of technology out there that allows them or enables them to conduct scientific missions that help advance uh, not only things that we're doing in, in space, but things down in Earth, uh, as far as aircraft, uh, airlines, medical, uh, and even t- different types of technology. If you think about the memory phones and the GPS location, all of that was derived somewhere down the line from space exploration. I keep reading that one day we'll all be taking holidays in space, although I've got to admit I've never really seen why anyone would. Is the sort of comfort level that would be required for that sort of activity even on your task list or do you have a more functional brief? I'm just trying to get an idea of the parameters of what you do. Well, that type of activity is more towards the commercial space uh, advancements. Uh, My work is primarily looking at the data around our space exploration at NASA. So everything that I do focuses around turning data into some type of actionable knowledge. Uh, and in this particular case, what we're talking about is the information we received from the astronauts after they visited the International Space Station in ways to improve uh, not only living, but the technology and the comfort uh, and the, the exercise as well as the food that they have to deal with while they're on the International Space Station for their for a time being. Okay, a really stupid uh, supplementary question, if I may, because, you know, just assume that I know nothing, you're probably halfway there. If they send a a report back or something saying that something needs improving, but the equipment isn't actually up there, it must cost an absolute fortune to get upgrades or to get, you know, replacements or repairs done. How do you even go about assessing what's feasible and what's not? Well, one of the things we first do, of course, with the data that the astronauts give us is to uh, categorize put them into different themes, look at the data to understand uh, what the various astronauts may be saying about a particular object on the International Space Station, whether that be an exercise equipment, the computer systems, the fire systems, or or the, the, uh, the sleeping arrangements. All of that has to be looked at to see whether it's improving upon. So in order to us for an improve upon it, it takes a long time. Uh, you think about everything that we do that goes up to the International Space Station has to be tested has to be certified to go into space. But we think ahead also. NASA's very good about redundancy and having enough equipment up there to keep the modules going. So it's a long process to plan things out. My goal here is just to make sure that we think far enough ahead that they'll have the, the, the right equipment up there when it's necessary. Right, now, these are very thoroughly trained, qualified, fit, and very hardy people uh, that we're talking about. So I imagine the requests you get and the feedback you get are pretty sober stuff. You know, you're not going to get people saying, I oh, quite like the new Sonos speaker, please. It's going to be something that's serious and uh, useful. What sort of feedback, what sort of actionable requests do you actually get? Well, a lot of the actionable requests are actually being done by the, the engineers on the ground to understand the astronauts' thoughts on a particular set of equipment. And the easiest one to talk about right now is maybe the exercise equipment. As we know, the astronauts have to exercise on a regular basis in order to maintain their health while they're up there. So somebody that on the ground, one of our engineers that may be working on the equipment, will want to understand what the astronauts have thought about this equipment over its lifespan or over a certain mission or over any kind of time frame that we may be thinking about. So it's a request by the engineers to understand uh, what the astronaut thinks that starts the process of our human factors engineers looking at ways to improve upon that particular type of equipment. And we get various questions as, as well as far as how the equipment rated, uh, what was easy to use, anything such as that, and even simple questions you know, from our food experts to under, try to understand the texture of the food. 
obviously we're sending ingredients or food up and down the whole time and that's that's evident this must involve some sort of technology i can't imagine that uh, you'd be crunching this sort of data by hand that the task would be unending so what do you actually use to analyze the data that you get back well i have a team of data scientists uh, that take a look at the data and we primarily are using natural language processing type of uh, algorithm to understand what the astronauts have been saying once we've done our analysis uh, on the on the actual text we put that into a, a, a database. In this particular case, we're using Neo4j graph database in order to store the comments, to store the individual tokens or words that are generated by them, and as well as storing our additional analysis, such as either sentiment analysis to understand whether the comment was positive or negative by the astronauts, to understand that the term frequency of the words that it may be using, and that allows us to eventually find comments that are similar through our analysis so that we can more quickly uh, pull out all the comments that may be alike. This process, which was done more by hand a year ago at the latest, uh, where engineers would have to read through the comments and do the same thing, uh, and would take them anywhere from three to four weeks to just do one simple analysis, we can now shorten that time frame down to about three days. Right. This is starting to sound a little bit similar to, uh, or quite similar, actually, to an awful lot that does happen in the commercial sector on Earth. You know, it, it does sound like standard data analytics. Would that be a fair comment? Am I underestimating the complexity of the task? No, you're not underestimating. It's generally using basic natural language algorithms in order to understand the textual comments that have been generated by the astronauts. And where do you see the technology that you're using uh, actually going? Is it based on audio feedback? Is it written feedback at the moment? How, how do you see the thing developing? Well, right now, currently, what we do is, is every time when the astronauts return from their mission on the International Space Station, they go through a series of debriefs, uh, which are just live interviews that are that where people will capture their comments and actually write them down and insert them into a database. I think eventually we'll probably start a little bit more of audio uh, recognition, trying to capture these a little bit faster through speech to text for us to be able to analyze that information. You'll also probably start seeing some more image recognition. Um, we're, we're looking at ways to understanding the astronaut's uh, intent or uh, their emotions at the time based on their images that we may be receiving during the interviews. That makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned that uh, this was done by hand or manually, perhaps one could say. About, up to about a year ago. Is, does this mean this is part of an overall digital transformation strategy? Yes, I would say this is all part of our, our long-term digital transformation strategy throughout the agency. Uh, one of my goals or one of my duties or responsibilities, I guess, as the chief knowledge architect is to find different ways to utilize our data, our current data, and transform that into a way that is faster to be utilized through some type of digital transformation, whether that be updating or upgrading our databases, providing a better dashboards or, or visualization techniques of the data. Now, taking a slightly broader view than just the data analytics, there are still some people out there who say that we don't need to send people to space anymore when we can't even feed everyone on Earth. I mean, there's also people out there who say the moon landing was fake. We'll leave, the, leave those people to one side. But we'll say that you know there are people who make this point about the resources that go into it. What would you say to those people who would rather we focus their efforts on cleaning up the earth and making it work better? I think we're doing that both. Uh, we're, NASA strives hard to take all of our technology that we develop and create and make that accessible and available to the general public via different types of tech transfer. And many of our technology, uh, much of our technology has been transferred over the years that have aided 
uh, in many different capacities. Um, and one of the biggest things that, that comes to mind right away was the, uh, the miners uh, that were stuck down in South America. Uh, we use NASA technology to try to help find those and locate those miners um, and, and help pull them out. That's just small things, but if you look at some of our tech transfer sites that we have available, we showcase the numerous types of technology and software that's available to the public for, for their use in developing giving back to the economy for them to be able to grow the economy here on Earth and help support uh, um, our life on Earth. NASA's mission is to better humankind, not to necessarily just support space. We plan on supporting the entire Earth. Uh, you've mentioned the uh, the miners, which is a, an amazing example. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about what uh, technology was used to help locate those people and uh, perhaps uh, elaborate on any other ways that uh, your findings can benefit terrestrial operations. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I wish I could, but I don't have enough information to, to give you all the technology that, that was used at that time. Fair enough. Okay. Well, finally, perhaps then you could tell me, I mean, I know you've said that you've agreed that this is technology that's vaguely similar to the uh, stuff that uh, we use down here, but it still blows my mind a little bit. So perhaps if you could tell me a bit about where people can find out more about this fascinating work that you do. Uh, so you know, I generally t tend to be very active on social media, um, on Twitter and on LinkedIn, and I post a lot of the information that my team is working on, and I generally will post when we publish a paper. But you can also look on different NASA websites, nasa.gov, to find out information about what NASA is doing in general, as well as any of our tech transfer, software transfers that's available that shows how technology is being used across the world. And go on, 50th anniversary of the uh, first successful uh, moon landing. You must be having a hell of a party there somewhere sometime this week, mustn't you? Oh, definitely. We're having a great, a lot of great activities going on this week. Uh, I'm currently in Washington, D.C., and we have a lot of activities going down the National Mall. Um, I'm going to, uh, we're having a uh, orchestra concert this Saturday specifically for the Apollo 11 launch. So there's activities going on not only here in Washington DC, but all throughout the different uh, centers in the United States as well as around the world. You enjoy every split second. David Messer, Knowledge Architect for NASA. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Guy. I appreciate the time. And many thanks to you for listening. That was the Near Futurist podcast with me, Guy Clapperton. I'll be back down to earth in two weeks' time as always. Don't forget to have a look at the website at nearfuturist.co.uk. See you in a fortnight. Mm -hmm.